This is Charles Mallet with a podcast for UK Column, in which I will examine the apparent clash between contemporary legislation, human rights, and faith. On the UK Column News on the 21st of December 2022, Brian Gerrish recounted a story concerning the arrest of a lady called Isabel Vaughan Spruce, upon which Alex Thompson later commented. The situation was that Vaughan Spruce was seen standing outside an abortion clinic in Birmingham. She was approached by a couple of police constables and asked questions, one of which was, are you praying? To which she replied, I might be praying in my head. Confirming that she was praying led to her immediate arrest. How is it that we can live in a country where silent prayer merits detention? After all, the European Convention on Human Rights, which was enshrined into UK law by the Human Rights Act of 1998, has Article 9 just to protect such freedoms, the freedom of thought, conscience and religion. We've probably learned rather more about human rights over the last couple of years than we imagined that we may have done. And Article 9 is referred to as a qualified right. I'm just going to read now from the Blackstone's Handbook for Policing Students. And this is what gives police constables guidance on how to interpret the Human Rights Act. Qualified rights relate to matters where interference by the public authority is permissible if it is in the public interest and can be qualified. For example, to prevent disorder or crime, for public safety or for national security. However, a public authority, such as the police, may only interfere with a qualified right if the interference is lawful and is part of existing common or statute law, such as the power to stop and search, made for one of the specifically listed permissible acts in the interests of the public, such as in order to prevent disorder for public safety, or necessary in a democratic society because the wider interests of the community as a whole often have to be balanced against the rights of an individual, and, crucially, in brackets after this, but it must still be proportionate. We'll go into a little bit more detail in due course, but in essence, the reason that prayer was qualified as a prohibited activity was due to the imposition of something called a Public Spaces Protection Order, a PSPO, which gives a local authority power to prohibit certain activities within a demarcated zone. Binding together the three strands of this podcast is the subject of abortion. For it was the Robert Clinic, an abortion clinic in Birmingham, which had had the PSPO created around it, apparently to protect those using the service and those working there. Abortion raises some very, very thorny questions and issues in terms of legislation, human rights, and faith. So, in some senses, it does seem fitting that it should find itself at the heart 
of such an incredibly controversial mixture of forces. The mainstream media have very much taken the line that PSPOs should be referred to as buffer zones, and they are, in essence, to keep away nuisance protesters from such sites. And despite the press coverage, Isabel Vaughan Spruce has subsequently appeared on Tucker Carlson's programme in the United States, these buffer zones are in fact nothing new. Readers of the UK Column website may have seen a very good article by Liz Pilgrim posted in October 2022, and if you've not yet read it, I would encourage you to do so. It's entitled, No Prey Zones, A Challenge to the Churches, and refers to one such created by Bournemouth, Christchurch and Poole Council. We'll go now to the piece of legislation which enables local authorities to create such zones. And this is the Antisocial Behaviour, Crime and Policing Act of 2014. As the title suggests, the primary purpose of this act was to produce countermeasures to what's been described as antisocial behaviour. And in the introductory text, antisocial behaviour is described as conduct that has caused or is likely to cause harassment, alarm or distress to any person or conduct capable of causing nuisance or annoyance to a person in relation to that person's occupation of residential premises. Now, it's section 59 which gives local authorities the power to make orders so I'll just read from that section. Subsection 1. A local authority may make public spaces protection order if satisfied on reasonable grounds that two conditions are met. The first condition is that activities carried on in a public place within the authority's area have had a detrimental effect on the quality of life of those in the locality or it is likely that activities will be carried on in a public place within that area and that they will have such an effect. The second condition is that the effect or likely effect of the activities is or is likely to be of a persistent or continuing nature, is or is likely to be such as to make the activities unreasonable and justifies the restrictions imposed by the notice. If you have listened to any of the podcasts I've produced previously for UK Column or read any of the articles I've written on policing, then you'll know as a recurrent theme that I refer repeatedly to the very subjective nature of modern legislation. And when we consider a statement such as have had a detrimental effect on the quality of life of those in the locality, it is easy to see why subjectivity is quite so important. After all, how exactly is a detrimental effect qualified and by whom? The subsection refers to those in the locality, but does that mean a majority of the locality? Does that mean all of those? Or does that purely mean some of those? It's really the last clause of the second condition that acts as the self-looking lollipop in that it states, the second condition is that the effect or likely effect of the activities justifies the restrictions imposed by the notice. And this, in effect, gives local authorities a completely blank canvas where they may decide 
without being challenged what exactly constitutes a detrimental effect and indeed any conditions that they wish to impose in order to contain it. There is a period of time within which the prescribed instructions of a PSPO can be challenged by residents in that locality as it's referred to and the local authority is duty-bound to reply. But this would appear to be very similar to the procedure by which petitions are submitted to the Westminster government. And no matter what the particular topic is at hand, the government will reply that they have read the concerns of those signing the petitions, but they're going to do it anyway. Whilst we are taking a slightly closer look at legislation, it's worth pointing out that uh, the 2014 Act, the Antisocial Behaviour, Crime and Policing Act, has been enhanced by the 2022 Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act. And there is appended section 59A, which is the power to make expedited public spaces protection orders. So following the pattern of problem reaction solution, which is exactly what we're seeing with protests like the Just Stop Oil climate activism at the moment, which is providing great impetus to the current public order bill. Uh, So the 2022 Act, Police Crime Sentencing Courts Act, enhanced the capability of a local authority to make PSPO by stating Subsection 1, a local authority may make an expedited public spaces protection order, brackets, an expedited order, close brackets, in relation to a public space within the local authority's area, if satisfied on reasonable grounds that three conditions are met. The first condition is that the public place is in the vicinity of a school in the local authority's area, or a site in the local authority's area where, or from which, vaccines are provided to members of the public by or pursuant to arrangements with an NHS body or test and trace services are provided. So if we're to take the law at face value, is there anything inherently wrong with the suggestion that public spaces protection orders might be used for good? I'm sure you'll be able to bring to mind certain activities that you might consider to be antisocial behaviour and indeed particular fixed points from where such antisocial behaviour may emanate. This is usually concerning alcohol and noise. And in such an instance, it could be argued that there might be a detrimental effect on the quality of life of those in the locality if, night upon night upon night, a pub or a nightclub turned out noisy, brawling folk chucking glass bottles around the place till all hours. Except we're not. We're talking about an abortion clinic. Moreover, in this case, we're certainly not talking about drunken hooligans throwing insults and more at one another. We're talking about a lone woman standing silently on the side of the road, praying in her head. So what on earth could have been put in the text of the PSPO itself? And how could it have come to that? Well, in the case of Birmingham City Council, this is the text of the PSPO. The Council has had regard to the rights and freedoms set out in the European Convention on Human Rights, 
The Council has had particular regard to the rights and freedoms set out in Article 10, brackets, right of freedom of expression, close brackets, and Article 11, brackets, right of assembly, close brackets, of the European Convention on Human Rights, and has concluded that the restrictions on such rights and freedoms imposed by this order are lawful, necessary, and proportionate. The activities prohibited by the order are, one, protesting, namely engaging in any act of approval or disapproval, or attempted act of approval or disapproval, with respect to issues related to abortion services, by any means. This includes, but is not limited to, graphic, verbal or written means, prayer or counselling. 2. Interfering or attempting to interfere, whether verbally or physically, with a Robert Clinic service user, visitor or member of staff. 3. Intimidating or harassing, or attempting to intimidate or harass, a Robert Clinic service user, visitor or a member of staff. 4. Recording or photographing a Robert Clinic service user, visitor or member of staff. Or 5. Displaying any text or images relating directly or indirectly to the termination of pregnancy. It then goes on with a number of paragraphs below that. And it's paragraph 9 that for this situation is worth drawing attention to because it states, A person who is believed to have engaged in a breach of this order or in antisocial behaviour within the restricted area is required to leave the area if asked to do so by a police officer, police community support officer or other person designated by Birmingham City Council. So we'll come on to the police actions in a moment, but straight away and obviously with something that's been filmed and subsequently posted on the internet, it's very difficult to get context, or at least accurate context. But it did certainly appear that Isabel Vaughan Spruce was not invited to leave the area by a police officer. Instead, she was immediately arrested. So there we have it, set out in black and white in the PSPO, what the local authority has done is turned prayer into a form of protest. Just to go over it one more time, point one is protesting, namely engaging in any act of approval or disapproval. And it goes on to say, this includes, but is not limited to, graphic, verbal or written means, prayer or counselling. So the point made by the order is that prayer in itself, can only be an act of approval or disapproval, and by definition, an act of protest. Well, bearing in mind Isabel Vaughan Spruce was subsequently arrested, this means that she must have been suspected of committing a criminal offence. And, except in certain instances like driving offences, which are referred to as strict liability offences, in that it doesn't matter what you were thinking about at the time, if you exceed the speed limit, for example, then the offence is complete as soon as you have exceeded the speed limit. But in other offences, you're required to put both parts of the offence together for it to be complete, and they are mens rea, the guilty mind, and actus reus, 
the guilty act. And what this means is that whilst it might be perfectly possible to commit what appears to be a criminal offence, you may not have done so intentionally. Of course, again, there are further caveats with regard to recklessness or indeed considering or not considering that such and such a consequence may have occurred. But in simple terms, for an offence to be complete, not only must you have conducted a particular activity, but you must have intended its effect. So, inferred by the arrest of Vaughan Spruce is the guilty mind. There's no doubt, because she said that she was, that she was praying in her head. But where was her guilty mind? Was she praying in protest? There's been much speculation on social media and elsewhere about exactly what precipitated the notification of police that Vaughan Spruce was there in the first place. And it has been put out that on four separate occasions she was deemed to have been in breach of the PSPO, although exactly how she was in breach has not been qualified. But if, as at the time of her arrest, she was simply standing still and praying silently, it would have been very hard for anybody to determine that she was in breach. After all, if somebody had been standing beside her, also totally still and silent and yet not praying, would they too have been in breach of the order? Apparently not. Therefore, I would argue that Vaughan Spruce's reasons for being where she was and doing what she was doing are entirely relevant. I should imagine that West Midlands Police did not examine her past and did not research the fact that in 2016 she featured in a BBC documentary about the stance that she does take on abortion and indeed what she tries to do when she spends time near abortion clinics. She said to the BBC, it would be a waste of time being outside the abortion clinic if we weren't going to provide real alternatives to women. We're very much there for women after they've had abortions as well. We're not there in the spirit of judgment or anger. If they've had an abortion, we want them to find peace. Does that sound like a protest? And, if not, what business does Birmingham City Council have prohibiting such an activity? And furthermore, what business does West Midlands Police have arresting such a person? I should imagine that if you are listening to this, there's a high probability that you will have watched the video which shows the arrest of Isabel Vaughan Spruce. And, like me, I should think you came away from it thinking, what on earth was going through the mind of that police constable when he arrested her. It's not that he didn't have a power of arrest. He did. That's enshrined in that particular piece of legislation. But arrest should always be a last resort. The video of the incident shows a very, very short conversation between the police constable and Isabel Vaughan Spruce. Of course, highlighting how absurd the situation is in that it wasn't even apparent when standing next to her, to the police constable, whether or not she was committing an offence. He actually had to ask her if she was praying because he couldn't tell. And it was for this reason that he had to caution her before he started talking to her. Because, in effect, he was about to ask a series of questions which would, in all likelihood, jeopardise any further investigation. 
Anyhow, central to any arrest should be necessity and proportionality. And it's very hard to see how this arrest was either necessary or proportionate. The necessity for arrest has to be stated, or at least should be stated, by the police constable at the time of arrest. And if you were able to hear the audio, the necessity given in this situation was the oft-used prompt and effective investigation, which is essentially what you say when you can't think of anything else. And the second one was to protect vulnerable people. And he states, by which he means service users. So because Vaughan Spruce had answered that she was not part of a protest, it solely rested on the fact that she was praying, albeit silently, And it's at this point that we return to the article I mentioned earlier by Liz Pilgrim from October last year. Conditions imposed in Bournemouth were slightly different from those written up by Birmingham City Council. And whilst there's been quite a bit of copying and pasting going on, one of the clauses written in Bournemouth is a prohibited activity includes holding vigils where members audibly pray, recite scripture, genuflect, sprinkle holy water on the ground, or cross themselves if they perceive a service user is passing by. The distinction I wanted to point out is the reference made by Bournemouth to audible prayer, which of course doesn't come under the PSPO in Birmingham. And Like almost anything left open to interpretation, one can almost always rest assured that police will in some way contrive to misinterpret it. And it's entirely possible that prayer or the act of prayer had never really been defined, which is exactly why the West Midlands police constable had to ask Isabel Vaughan Spruce if she was praying. It's not clearly articulated in the conditions of the PSPO whether prayer is meant to be an obvious act or not. And if it's not meant to be an obvious act, then how exactly is it that it falls under the prohibited activities? Equally, it's worth asking at this point how, if prayer can be deemed to have a detrimental effect on those in the locality, Why exactly is it that prayer is not deemed to have a detrimental effect on people in any locality? What is it about the proximity to an abortion clinic which renders those in that locality as vulnerable to having a reduced quality of life by prayer? Next, we'll look at human rights. Within the PSPO itself, the text referred to particularly Articles 10 and 11, as I say, both qualified rights, the freedom of expression and the freedom of assembly and association. But in actual fact, this particular case would appear to refer more to Articles 8 and 9, both qualified rights, Article 8 being the rights to respect for private and family life, and Article 9, freedom of thought, conscience and religion. Because Isabel Vaughan Spruce was possibly expressing herself, but not in such a manner that anybody else would have been able to ascertain exactly what it was she was expressing, and she certainly wasn't assembling or associating with anybody else. But nonetheless, those are the conditions that were 
set out in the PSPO itself. It appears what it's come down to, though, is the balancing, which is what one's always told about why it is that rights must be limited or qualified. The the balancing between one individual and another, or one group and another group, or an individual and a group. And in this instance, despite the very woolly language used in the PSPO itself, and indeed in the the Act of 2014 that enables such a zone, it was the right to respect for private and family life of presumably service users and the employees and visitors to the clinic that trumped those of anybody else, specifically of Isabel Vaughan Spruce, who was choosing to stand silently and pray. Now, that's all well and good when written down on a piece of paper, but how does that actually express itself in terms of actions? And really what we think about is how police usually will come to interfere in favour of one party or the other. So again, to return to Blackstones for a minute, applying the Human Rights Act to everyday policing, a police officer should consider the following questions in relation to an individual or group before interfering with another person's qualified rights. One, are my actions lawful? Is there common or statute law to support my interference with his or her rights? Number two, are my actions permissible? Am I permitted to interfere with his or her rights because it is in support of a duty such as preventing crime? Number three, are my actions necessary? Do the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few? In other words, must I take into account the interests of the community and balance one individual's rights against another's? And number four, are my actions proportionate? Having considered everything, will my actions be excessive, or could I do something less intrusive and more in proportion to the outcome I need to achieve? Well, I know how I would answer those questions if I were that police constable in Birmingham. If you are a regular UK column viewer or listener, then you'll be familiar with the position that, in some senses, human rights aren't really worth the paper they're written on, because, of course, the moment you do formalise them and put them down into words, then that very piece of paper can be torn up, or indeed, as we see with the Human Rights Act, these rights can be limited or qualified which, of course, is entirely subjective. The question is, what can be done? It would appear, at best, that this is a misinterpretation or a misapplication of legislation by the local authority, and indeed a misinterpretation or a misapplication of the same legislation by police. But the truth of it is, really, that this amounts to no more than an abuse of power and authority. The abuses of power across the world have formed a rather grotesque spectacle over the last three years, not least in the United Kingdom, beginning with the extremely suboptimal 
process by which the Coronavirus Act of 2020 was drawn up, apparently piggybacking on the Public Health Act of 1984, which was not really intended for such purposes. That should have fallen to the Civil Contingencies Act of 2004. But of course, the problem with the Civil Contingencies Act was that it would have required too much parliamentary scrutiny. So abuse of power and authority is certainly not a new thing, and nor indeed is resistance to it. You may have heard Mark Anderson talking on UK Column News before Christmas about the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. This was written into a book in 2013 by Matthew Trewella, and the subtitle of the book is A Proper Resistance to Tyranny and a Repudiation of Unlimited Obedience to Civil Government. Is it really correct that with his training and knowledge of legislation that a West Midlands police officer would arrest a woman for praying silently in her head, despite whatever conditions were set out in the PSPO? The central premise of the doctrine of the lesser magistrates is that those in a position position to do so have an absolute responsibility to prevent bad law from being exercised. And Matthew Trewella is an American He cites at Appendix C in his book, an example which is very pertinent to the issue of this podcast, Uh, the police officer as lesser magistrate. In January of 1989, Chet Gallagher, a police officer in Las Vegas, Nevada, arrived at an abortion clinic located on Rancho Drive. The place was surrounded by people who had gathered to interpose and blockade the doorway of the death camp in an attempt to prevent the killing of pre-born babies. Instead of proceeding to arrest these individuals for their, quote, act of lawlessness, end quote, as the other officers were busy doing, Gallagher parked his motorcycle and in full uniform joined those blockading the doors. This police officer understood his role and duty as a lesser magistrate, as evidenced by the following statement, which he read to his fellow officers and the press recorded. I have the sworn responsibility to protect human life. It alone is the highest call and most important duty of every commissioned peace officer. The protecting of human life is the priority that must be considered over less significant property and personal rights of others. Therefore, I exercise my discretion as a commissioned law enforcement officer, choosing not to arrest these rescuers, but standing with them, in their attempt to prevent certain death to unborn children. Now, while the circumstances are obviously different, the message is very clear. Whilst modern policing is often at great pains to distance itself from common law as an artefact or an irrelevant, it does so at great cost. Admittedly, much of this cost is handed on to them by parliamentarians who seek to contrive yet more and more subjective legislation, legislation which is seldom given to any nuanced interpretation by police and more often than not is exploited mercilessly by members of the general public seeking to get one over on their neighbour. If you're not sure what I mean by this, you only need to cast your mind back to the sheer volume of people who called police in early 2020, to tell them that there were more than six people in their neighbour's garden, etc. Common law, in as much as possible, provides a single objective standard, which is in such great contrast to the incredible confusion of 
often conflicting legislation that now pollutes the current policing environment. It would be perfectly natural to ponder the reason for such subjective legislation and indeed to consider who it benefits. In this regard, it's most appropriate that this podcast concerns both abortion and faith. From the doctrine of the lesser magistrates, Matthew Trewella states that the tyrant state abhors an objective standard to which it is accountable. Rather, it flourishes in a subjective environment. It wants to be accountable to no one. The constant march of authoritarianism in the United Kingdom would appear to go hand in hand with what looks like a deliberate destruction of faith. Only in the case of the Church of England, it would appear that the vast majority of clergy have been entirely willing participants. Trewella goes on to cite the pitfalls of increased secularisation, which of course is exactly what we've experienced over several decades. And he quotes William Blackstone, who he refers to as being the most cited legal scholar in the writings of America's founding fathers. He was a British jurist who wrote a four-volume work entitled Commentaries on the Law of England. Blackstone refers to higher law, and he says that this is God's law. Blackstone refers to God's law as those superior laws, and stated that upon these two foundations, the law of nature and the law of revelation, depend all human laws. That is to say, no human laws should be suffered to contradict these. Well, now would be the time to consider faith in relation to abortion, and the Church of England's position on abortion is written on their website. I quote, The Church of England's stated position combines principled opposition with a recognition that there can be strictly limited conditions under which abortion may be morally preferable to any available alternative. This is based on our view that the fetus is a human life with the potential to develop relationships, think, pray, choose and love. Those facing unwanted pregnancies realise the gravity of the decision they face. All abortions are tragedies, since they entail judging one individual's welfare against that of another, even if one is, as yet, unborn. Every possible support, especially by church members, needs to be given to those who are pregnant in difficult circumstances, and care, support and compassion must be shown to all, whether or not they continue with their pregnancy. Well, if one considers, as per her quote to the BBC documentary of 2016, what exactly Isabel Vaughan's Bruce said she was doing outside the Robert Clinic or indeed any other abortion clinic, then why is it that the Church of England leadership has been silent on this very issue? After a trawl that was certainly not exhaustive, I was only able to come across one dissenting voice amongst clerics of any faith, and that was that of Calvin Robinson, a recently ordained vicar in the Church of England, who was appalled and outraged at the arrest of Isabel Vaughan Spruce and indeed on the provisions listed within the Birmingham City Council PSPO. But his is a lone voice, which is an underwhelming response of enormous proportion.
It seems barely five minutes ago that church leaders were jumping out of all corners to instruct people that to take an experimental pharmaceutical product was to love thy neighbour and indeed to go as far as saying that Jesus would have taken the jab. Concurrent with the descent into totalitarianism has been the intended destruction of all religious infrastructure and it's hard to see how this situation isn't comparable. On this note, and as we near the end of this podcast, I'd like to draw your attention to a series on UK Column produced by Brian Gerrish and Alex Thompson entitled The Psychological Attack on the UK, which you should be able to find easily at ukcolumn.org. And I do believe there will be more to come on the specifics of the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. In conclusion, I would say that the paths of this podcast do point towards the apparent feeding of an increasingly powerful machine. Thought crime has existed as a concept, but it does appear that we really have met it in reality now. If Isabel Vaughan Spruce had decided not to answer questions to police that day, it's possible that she may not have been arrested. But the fact is that she did admit that she'd been praying in her head. And that was enough for a police constable to be convinced in his own mind that arrest was necessary. So due to yet more selective interpretation of subjective legislation, police appear to be further empowered, which on some levels may be the case. Of course, it's very easy to forget, and I did reference it earlier, that subjective as they are, these points of legislation come with consequences, and that is that the threshold is extremely low because anybody now can be a victim. It means that anybody can put in a call to the police and expect some sort of response. What police have become very bad at is managing risk, and therefore a process of triage is what needs to be introduced because, of course, at the moment... It's instances exactly like these where a member of the public with nothing better to do or indeed an axe to grind will call police often with a spurious or vexatious claim and police will choose to investigate it rather than raising the bar and telling the apparent victim that no offence has been committed and that they will not be dealing with it. So in actual fact, at the moment generating more and more and more business like this is in fact to the detriment of police and certainly to the detriment of their morale. Both the on-the-bus, off-the-bus Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, and the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, Sir Mark Rowley, have warned police against policing thoughts and feelings and stick to the core business of policing crime and indeed adhering to the often forgotten Peelian principles, or indeed the Code of Ethics, which only has lip service referred to. We shall see. I will leave you with another quote from Matthew Trewella's Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates, and though he is American, I think this may equally apply to the United Kingdom. As our nation continues to sink into rebellion, immorality and depravity, the lesser magistrate doctrine needs to be explained both to the magistrates themselves and to the people of our country. Thanks for listening.